Hi, I'm Wheeler Winston Dixon, James Ryan Professor of Film Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and this is Frame by Frame. And today I want to speak about a very serious subject, the Hollywood blacklist of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. The blacklist has its roots in the Great Depression, which was a result of the 1929 crash. By 1933, 25% of America's workforce were out of work. Uh, jobs simply weren't available. Thus, there was the rise of labor unions, and particularly in Hollywood, the major studios resisted this because they had been using non-union labor for so long that they viewed any attempt to organize as communistically inspired. At the same time that this is happening, we have uh, Hitler rising to power in Germany and the conditions in Europe becoming more and more unstable. In 1936, the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees for the first time managed to organize unions and close shops at the studios like Warner Brothers, Paramount, and MGM. In 1937, the Supreme Court upheld the National Labor Relations Act, giving them the right to collectively organize and bargain. Um, in 1938, uh, Congress formed the House and American Activities Committee to investigate uh, unionization basically at the behest of the studios and large corporations which were against this. And in 1938, we have the first wave of House and American Activities Committee's accusations against people. Uh, a former communist named James B. Matthews came forward, and this is his only appearance of any note in history, claiming that James Cagney, Betty Davis, Clark Gable, Miriam Hopkins, and Shirley Temple were all communist sympathizers. And at the time, nobody took him very seriously. But then, in 1939, Stalin and Hitler signed a non-aggression pact on the eve of World War II. And then Hitler momentarily after that attacked Poland and Czechoslovakia. We, of course, got into the war in 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7th. And at that time, the Soviet Union just more or less sat by between 1939 and 1941. It was only in 1941 that they came into the picture on the side of the Allies. And during World War II, the Soviets were our allies, but they were very uneasy ones. Winston Churchill once said, I would make a deal with the devil in a fight against Hitler, and that's exactly what was happening here. But for a while, the Soviets were our allies. But what happened, of course, after the war was that Stalin immediately began enslaving all of Eastern Europe, and everybody became extremely afraid of the communist threat. In 1941, we have an event which really sort of leads into this, and that's the great animators' strike at Walt Disney. Uh, the Disney uh, studio was a non-union shop, and in 1941, the animators struck seeking better pay, uh, the right to unionize, and uh, better working conditions. Disney resisted and finally left the country because he was so angry about this and convinced that it was a communist plot. The strike was settled five weeks later, but Disney was extremely bitter and so were the employees. And this was the, really the beginning of the blacklist. In 1946, the House Committee on Un-American Activities held formal hearings on the communist influence in the motion picture industry. And in 1947, the House and American Activities Committee held 10 days of closed hearings in Los Angeles. Robert Taylor, Leela Rogers, the mother of Ginger Rogers, Jack Warner, and Adolf Manjou were the principal witnesses or friendly witnesses. 1947, the Screen Actors Guild signs the loyalty oath agreement. You have to sign a loyalty oath, and if you don't, you don't work. 
In 47, formal hearings begin with Gary Cooper, Walt Disney, Robert Montgomery, George Murphy, and Ronald Reagan testifying as friendly witnesses before the House Committee. We have done a pretty good job in our business of keeping those people's activities curtailed. In 1947 also, HUAC, which is short for the House Un-American Activities Committee, charged the Hollywood Ten, uh, who included Herbert Bieberman, Edward Dimitrick, who was a very famous noir director, and Dalton Trumbo with contempt of Congress for refusing to answer uh, their questions. Also in 1947, um, a series of Hollywood stars tried to fight against this. They called themselves the Committee for the First Amendment and they flew to Washington to try to stop the hearings. And these people included Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, Ira Gershwin, Sterling Hayden, John Houston, Danny Kaye, and Gene Kelly. But soon they realized that the forces were just so overwhelming, there was nothing they could do to stop the HUAC. They folded their tents and went home. Uh, I'm going to read a list of some of the people whom the HUAC identified as communists. Edward G. Robinson, who was a fixture at World War II bond rallies selling bonds, Charlie Chaplin, Catherine Hepburn, Danny Kaye, Gregory Peck, Frank Sinatra, Orson Welles, Leonard Bernstein, the composer and conductor, uh, Will Gear, who wound up later on the Waltons playing Grandpa Walton, Lena Horne, the African-American singer, Langston Hughes, the writer, uh, Joseph Losey, the director who fled to England, Harry Belafonte, Luis Buñuel, the brilliant Spanish director, and the list goes on and on. Um, when the Hollywood Ten went, were sent to prison in 1951, Edward Dimitrick was the first to crack. He simply couldn't stand the conditions. He got out and he named names. Um, and as a result of that, he was put back to work directing The Sniper and later The Cane Mutiny. Elia Kazan in 1952 also gave friendly testimony before the committee. And in 1952 also another important thing, Charlie Chaplin leaves the country for England for a tour, a promotional tour for his film Limelight. When he tries to re-enter, J. Edgar Hoover sees to it that he is not allowed to re-enter the United States on the ground that he is a communist sympathizer. And Chaplin is effectively now barred from the United States. In 1953, the Screenwriters Guild allows producers to remove screen credits of any suspected communists. In 1957, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences excludes anyone on the Hollywood blacklist for consideration for an Oscar. In 1958, the Supreme Court of the United States rejects the argument that the Hollywood blacklist violated employee rights. But in 1959, the tide finally starts to turn. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decides that screenwriters and actors in the blacklist will no longer be prohibited from consideration for the Oscars. In 1960, Dalton Trumbo does the screenplay for Otto Preminger's Exodus and becomes the first person who was blacklisted since the beginning of the blacklist to get a screen credit. In 1970, Dalton Trumbo delivers his famous Only Victim speech before the Screenwriters Guild. In 1972, Robert Vaughn, best known as probably the man from UNCLE, uh, writes a brilliant book called Only Victims, which is a study of show business blacklisting, which is the first major book and one of the best still on that. In 1972 also, Charlie Chaplin returns to the United States for the first time since 1952 to receive an honorary Academy Award for his life works. Oh, you're wonderful. 
sweet people. Thank you. In 1976, Martin Ritt directs The Front with Woody Allen, which is about uh, screenwriters who are forced to work under pseudonyms, and they get fronts to front for their work. This is in 1976. I don't recognize the right of this committee to ask me these kind of questions. In 1991, producer Erwin Winkler directs Guilty by Suspicion, starring Robert De Niro, which is probably the best account of the blacklist. But all in all, the blacklist put a lot of people out of work, many of whom were entirely guiltless and who were just basically the victim of a vendetta. But I'm going to leave the last word to Dalton Trumbo, who was one of the victims of the blacklist, but who wrote very movingly about it. And this is part of his very famous only victim speech. The blacklist was a time of evil, and no one on either side who survived it came through untouched by evil. Caught in a situation that had passed beyond the control of mere individuals, each person reacted as his nature, his needs, his conviction, as particular circumstances compelled him to. There was bad faith and good, honesty and dishonesty, courage and cowardice, selflessness and opportunism, wisdom and stupidity, good and bad on both sides. When you, who were in your 40s or younger, Look back on that dark time with curiosity, as I think occasionally you should. It will do no good to search for villains, or heroes, or saints, or devils, because there were none. There were only victims.